Audio Renaissance presents Where the Right Went Wrong How Neoconservatives Subverted the Reagan Revolution and Hijacked the Bush Presidency by Patrick J. Buchanan Read for you by the author American Empire at Apogee Not even the British Empire at its zenith dominated the world as the United States does today. U.S. forces are deployed in lands the soldiers of Victoria never saw. Our warships make port calls on all continents. Our military technology is generations ahead of any other nations. Our GDP is 30% of the global economy. Brand names like Coca-Cola, McDonald's, and Levi's are household words from Kathmandu to Kurdistan. The music the young listen to around the world is American, or an imitation thereof. Americans annually claim the lion's share of the Nobel Prizes in science, medicine, and economics. Hollywood films are the world's most watched. The dollar is the world's reserve currency. The International Monetary Fund that keeps scores of nations from bankruptcy is headquartered in Washington and responsive to the U.S. Treasury. The American language, English, is the lingua franca of the global elite. When crises erupt in the Balkans, the Caucasus, Kashmir, or the Mideast, U.S. diplomats are the brokers of truce. By almost any measure, military and economic power, technology, standard of living, cultural dominance, social and political freedom, America is the gold standard, the hyperpower of the Quai d'Orsay's resentment. Yet one recalls the story Lincoln is said to have told friends gathered to see him off as he departed Springfield to take up the leadership of his sundered nation. An Eastern monarch, said Lincoln, asked his wise men to come up with words that would everywhere and always be true. The wise men went away and reflected, and when they returned, they gave the king these words, and this too shall pass away. Let us hope that is not true of America, said Lincoln. Yet it is true. All republics, all empires, all civilizations pass away. The Roman Republic began to die the day Caesar's legions crossed the Rubicon to make him dictator of Rome. Cicero knew it. The crowds did not or did not care. 400 years later, Alaric the Goth led his army over the Alps to ring down the curtain on the world's greatest empire. What brought Rome down? What was the cause? The Emperor Julian the Apostate believed Rome could not survive Constantine's embrace of a Christianity that forswore the martial virtues for love thy neighbor. The empire could not survive the loss of the old pagan faith. When a religion dies, the culture and the civilization that grew out of it dies with it. And indeed, as Rome was invaded by barbarians, popes would stand at the city gates to plead for mercy from the likes of Attila the Hun. In our time, empires collapse more suddenly. The 20th century was a graveyard of empires. The Austro-Hungarian, German, Russian, and Ottoman perished in the Great War. The Empire of the Sun was reduced to ashes in 1945. The British Empire vanished within a quarter of a century of its finest hour in 1940. The Soviet Empire succumbed to a collapse of faith and will in 1989. All the empires of the 20th century are gone. Only the American empire endures. But the invasion of Iraq and the war to impose democracy upon that Arab and Islamic nation that has never known democracy 
may yet prove a textbook example of the imperial overstretch that brought down so many empires of the past. Though the object of being a great power is to be able to fight a great war, wrote British historian A.J.P. Taylor, the only way of remaining a great power is not to fight one. Britain fought two. In World War I, she lost 720,000 dead. In World War II, another 400,000. In 10 years of war, Britain had sunk the blood of the best and bravest of her young and the accumulated treasure of her empire. And Britain's empire fell. America, however, stayed out of the world wars longer than any other power and thus suffered fewer losses. Not until four years after British, French, Germans, and Russians had been slaughtering one another at a rate of 6,000 a day did the Doughboys arrive to turn the tide on the Western Front only six months before the armistice. Not until four years after Hitler overran France did the Higgins boats appear off Normandy just 11 months before VE Day. In both world wars, we played Fortinbras in Hamlet, coming upon the carnage in the final scene in the bloodstained throne room to take charge of affairs. During the Cold War, America avoided a war with the Soviet Union that could have wreaked far greater havoc and destruction on us than was visited on Britain in two world wars. We are the last superpower because we stayed out of the great wars of the 20th century longer than any of the other powers, and we suffered and lost less than any of them. Since the Cold War's end, however, all the blunders of Britain's ruling class in its march to folly have been replicated by our own elites, from the arrogance of power, to the alienation of allies, to the waging of wars in regions where no vital U.S. interests are at risk. For a century and a half, America held to Washington's dictum of no permanent alliances. Now we have treaty guarantees out to 50 nations on five continents and troops in 100 countries. Some 150,000 U.S. soldiers are tied down in seemingly endless wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Should the United States confront another crisis anywhere on Earth, the bankruptcy of our foreign policy would be transparent to the world. President Bush has declared it to be U.S. policy to launch preemptive war on any rogue regime that seeks weapons of mass destruction, a policy today being defied by North Korea and Iran, both of which have programs to produce nuclear weapons. The president has also declared it to be U.S. policy to go to war to prevent any other nation from acquiring the power to challenge U.S. hegemony in any region of the earth. It is called the Bush Doctrine. It is a prescription for permanent war, for permanent peace. The wars are the death of republics. No nation, warned Madison, can preserve its freedom in the midst of continual warfare. In 2003, the United States invaded a country that did not threaten us, did not attack us, and did not want war with us. To disarm it of weapons we have since discovered it did not have. His war cabinet assured President Bush that weapons of mass destruction would be found, that U.S. forces would be welcomed with garlands of flowers, that democracy would flourish in Iraq and spread across the Middle East, that our triumph would convince Israelis and Palestinians to sit down and make peace. None of this happened. Those of us who were called unpatriotic for opposing an invasion of Iraq 
and who warned we would inherit our own Lebanon of 25 million Iraqis were proven right. Now our nation is tied down and our army is being daily bled in a war to create a democracy in a country where it has never before existed. With the guerrilla war, U.S. prestige has plummeted. The hatred of President Bush is pandemic from Marrakesh to Mosul. Volunteers to fight the Americans have been trickling into Iraq from Syria, Saudi Arabia, and Iran. In spring 2004, revelations of the sadistic abuse of Iraqi prisoners at Abu Ghraib prison sent U.S. prestige sinking to its lowest level ever in the Arab world. We may have ignited the war of civilizations it was in our vital interest to avoid. Never has America been more resented and reviled in an Islamic world of a billion people. At home, the budget surpluses of the 1990s have vanished as the cost of the Afghan and Iraq wars has soared beyond the projections of the most pessimistic of the president's economic advisors. The U.S. budget deficit is above 4% of GDP, with a trade deficit in goods in excess of 5% of GDP, the dollar has lost a third of its value against the euro in three years. One in six manufacturing jobs has disappeared since President Bush took the oath. By mid-2004, the president had failed to abolish a single significant agency, program, or department of a Leviathan government that consumes a fifth of our economy, nor had he vetoed a single bill. America's native-born population has ceased to grow. Its birth rate has fallen below replacement levels. U.S. population growth now comes from immigrants, legal and illegal, from Asia, Africa, and Latin America. The religious, ethnic, and racial composition of the country, a child of Europe, is changing more rapidly than that of any other great nation in history in an era when race, religion, and ethnicity are tearing countries apart. The melting pot no longer works its magic. Newcomers are not assimilating. We are becoming what Theodore Roosevelt warned against our ever becoming, a polyglot boarding house for the world. The American people have demanded in every survey that illegal immigration be halted and legal immigration reduced. But the President and Congress refuse to do their constitutional duty to defend the states of the Union from what has become a foreign invasion. U.S. primary and secondary education is a disaster area. Test scores have been falling for decades and are below those of almost every other developed nation. In our universities, ignorance of American history has reached scandalous proportions and a rising percentage of students in the hard sciences come from foreign lands. The Republican Party, which had presided over America's rise to manufacturing preeminence, has acquiesced in the deindustrialization of the nation to gratify transnational corporations whose oligarchs are the party financiers. U.S. corporations are shutting factories here, opening them in China, outsourcing back office work to India, importing Asians to take white-collar jobs from Americans, and hiring illegal aliens for their service jobs. The Republican Party has signed off on economic treason. And though seven of the nine sitting justices were nominated by Republican presidents, Republicans have failed to rein in a Supreme Court that is imposing a social, moral, and cultural revolution upon our country. Then there are the ominous analogies to the Rome we read about in school. The decline of religion and morality, corruption of the commercial class, a debased and decadent culture. 
Many of America's oldest churches are emptying out. The Catholic Church, the nation's largest, is riven with heresy, scandal, dissent, and disbelief. Yet measured by the yardstick that counts in this capital city, power, the compassionate conservatism of George Bush is a triumph. Republicans in 2004 controlled both houses and have dominated Congress for a decade. Since the Goldwater defeat in 1964, Republicans have won seven of the ten presidential contests. The nation has seemed as much in tune with the GOP of today as it was with a party of Harding and Coolidge in the Roaring Twenties. But victory has come at a high price, the abandonment of principle. Historically, Republicans have been the party of the conservative virtues, of balanced budgets, a healthy skepticism toward foreign wars, of a commitment to traditional values, and fierce resistance to the growth of government power and world empire. No more. Conservatism, as taught by 20th century leaders like Robert Taft, Barry Goldwater, Ronald Reagan, and Jesse Helms, is dead. Forty years after conservatives captured the party in the coup at the Cal Palace, ten years after the Republican Revolution of 1994, what do they have to show for it besides their committee chairmanships and cabinet chairs? The GOP may be Reaganite in its tax policy, but it is Wilsonian in its foreign policy, FDR in its trade policy, and LBJ all the way in its spending policies. Pragmatism is the order of the day. The Republican philosophy might be summarized, quote, to hell with principle, what matters is power, and that we have it, and that they do not. But principles do matter. Ideas do have consequences. For history teaches that if we indulge in the vices of republics and surrender to the temptation to buy votes with public money, to distract the populace with bread and circuses, to conduct imperial wars, we will destroy the last best hope of Earth. And just as for Lyndon Johnson, who delivered guns and butter in wartime, there came a day of reckoning, so too the chickens are coming home to roost for George W. Bush. Back in 1960, Barry Goldwater looked about him and said, in the conscience of a conservative, what we say today. Quote, I blame conservatives, ourselves, myself. Our failure is the failure of the conservative demonstration. Though we conservatives are deeply persuaded that our society is ailing and know that conservatism holds the key to national salvation and feel sure the country agrees with us, we seem unable to demonstrate the relevance of conservative principles to the needs of the day. End quote. One edit is needed in that paragraph today. We no longer feel sure the country agrees with us. We may have lost America for good. How and where did we conservatives lose the way? How does America find the way back to the constitutional republic we were? Or is this just the politics of nostalgia as the old republic is gone forever? I cannot believe or accept that the old republic is beyond restoration and redemption. The coming generation can, if it has the knowledge and resolve, restore the republic that once was and see us through. That is what this program is about. It is about where conservatives lost the way, about where the right went wrong, about how it came to be that a Republican-controlled capital city 
whose leaders daily profess their conservatism, could preside over the largest fiscal and trade deficits in our history and have us mired in a Wilsonian imperial war to remake the Arab Middle East in the image of the American Middle West. And it is about a cabal that betrayed the good cause of conservatism because, from the very beginning, they never believed in it. They had another agenda all along. So the purpose of this program is to retrace our steps to see where we lost the way and rediscover the way back home to a conservative politics of principle our beloved country so transparently needs now more than ever. And so I have dedicated this program to the coming generation of conservatives who must be as unfulfilled with politics as usual as were we when we too were young.